Now, these Sunday nights we are looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy. And we're in the first chapter and verse 7, where we read these words. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Though this is a special occasion, a service that will end in believers' baptism, I see no reason to desist from turning again to this epistle and these particular words, because they remind us so eloquently of what are some of the basic consequences of becoming a Christian. So it seems to me a very relevant message for this occasion because they answer the question that uh, some of you are turning over in your minds. What's in religion for me? If I should become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, one of his disciples, what can I expect? Is my life going to be facing a big list of do's and don'ts with its consequent inconsistencies and failures And guilt trips. Is that what I am being invited to take seriously? And you will see from the words that I have just read to you that uh, they describe becoming a Christian from God's perspective. They do so by reminding us of just a selection of some of the gifts that God gives everyone who turns in faith to him, to everyone who receives uh, Jesus Christ into their lives. Because when you receive him, you receive everything else, all the other graces that come in a package, one great, mighty, strong, dense atom of virtue and, and ability and authenticity that he gives with his son, Jesus Christ. He also tells us of one weakness that God says, no, you're not to trouble my children in this way. He says when uh, people become Christians, they don't become like timid little mice, wee, cowering, timorous beasties. You've noticed that in Amy then in the past year, you who are her friends, that becoming a Christian hasn't turned her into a, a stuttering, shrinking violet. She has her own unique personality, her opinions and her tastes and attitudes that she'll share with you. She had them before. She still has them. Then Paul is also reminding Timothy here of a few of the new resources. He selects three, which he thinks are most relevant to Timothy. He says that we experience a new spirit, a spirit of power over such weaknesses as compromise and temptation over the sins that hurt other people, that hurt the people we love. And we also experience, Paul says, uh, a new depth of love. And you know how we need that, these stony old hearts of ours. They need to be softened. They need more affection. And then we experience another thing, which seems to me is in short supply in our nation today, and that is self-discipline. Well, these are great virtues, aren't they? Power and love and self-discipline. And we're told that 
everyone who becomes a Christian, then with Christ, God freely gives us these graces. So the sentence then before us with uh, these terms that I'm going to explain to you in the next half an hour. Um, Then, uh, after I finish speaking and we've sung uh, hymn together, you know what's going to happen before Amy's baptism. She's going to speak. And she's going to say a few words. Just about the way she became a follower of Jesus Christ and what that means to her. Now, some of you are shocked at uh, the thought of having to speak to a a whole congregation in a church. You're thinking, you'll never see me standing in front of a hundred people and talking to them. It makes you tremble even to think about it. But you understand this is a, a purely voluntary action. We don't insist at all that a person being baptized speaks to us. Amy wanted to do that. It was important to her. But you understand that she doesn't speak because she's a forthright and and confident student so that you wish you had some of her genetic makeup. No, No, is it that she's been psyched up by me and that she's on some emotional high? Christianity has very little to do with emotional highs. The real reason for that part of the service, uh, Amy saying a few words, is here in the verses before us that God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity, but he empowers for wise and beautiful and good things. He changes people and he enables them to become uh, serious Christians, not Christians in word only, but in reality and inwardly from their hearts. It it happens like this. When God begins to work in your life, then often the first signs are a growing restlessness with materialism and the vague evolutionist explanation of everything. You start with the big questions and you... You look at them again. You looked at them when you were a teenager or when you were a student, and then you discarded them, and and then they aren't easily discarded. Did this world come about then by chance? Is it all a matter of billions of lucky coincidences over billions of years that we are where we are and the world is as the world is today? Is the Bible true? Did a man come to Jesus by night called Nicodemus and did this conversation took place and were these words recorded by John and written down here in the gospel? Did he preach the Sermon on the Mount? When he spoke, did the winds and waves obey him? Did he die to make atonement for our guilt and shame? Did he rise from the dead? Does he live At the right hand of God, does he come in spirit and join where we or just two or three people meet in his name? And he he comes and he sits alongside us and he nudges us and he opens our ears and he waves at us and he brings our wandering thoughts back and he says, "I'm, I'm saying these things to you, that's why I brought you here tonight. Does he come into our lives and and help us? from that dispositional complex which is called in the Bible the heart of man out of which all the issues of life come or 
Am I and Amy self-deluded? Are we deceived? Men and women, many of us here tonight, who do love Jesus Christ and trust him. For us, he can say nothing wrong. And such first initial stirrings in our minds about our origins and about God and about who we are and whether we could be helped by becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Those are the questions we, we have to think about again. Will we be hindered? Will we be warped? And these are the beginnings of the journey of those who are starting to know God for themselves. I'm insisting then that it's in your minds that Christianity begins. Think, we say. Please, please think now. You can disagree, but I don't don't think you have any right not to think about it. That's obscurantism. That it will go away if you don't think about it. Don't switch your brain off when you are considering the case for knowing God. So Paul says in the text, I'll read it to you again, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. They're very simple words, aren't they, to understand, but they're making enormous claims for what the living God did for a living boy for Timothy and what he's done for Amy and me and what he can do for you. If uh, the words are true and that's the, the great condition then if those words are true then they upgrade our lives. They, um, they offer new resources to us. A, a very loving and tender revolution that could improve your daily life and your routine and your relationships and and your whole future. So I think it's very important to to take it seriously for half an hour and consider these words in the Bible. I don't suppose any of you have noticed uh, these words in this text as you've read in your own devotions and you read scripture Some of you, every day, you read it and you've come across this and then I'm just highlighting it for a moment about knowing God for yourself and following Jesus Christ. And that's a great discovery. Uh, You've come to university to study this little grey, wet, windy town by the sea. Uh, You've come on holiday here, you know the town and so on. And you like things and you find new shops and new things going up and But the greatest discovery of all is um, God finding you here. So the first thing he says is God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. It's quite a good translation. It, It could perhaps better be translated cowardice. It's not the word fear. That Greek word, you know it. It's the word phobia. But that's not the word here. Um... The word here is only found here in all the New Testament. Um, But we find it elsewhere in Greek literature, and it describes the behavior of a soldier who runs away because of cowardice in a battle. 
Stand to your guns, it's saying then. Don't be a soldier overcome with funk. Oh, there's a, a lovely rare word for you children now. Yes, there's a great word for you. Pusillanimous. Isn't that a great word, kids? Isn't that? Isn't that a word to say? Well, do you like new words? I love new words. When your brother cries because a dog barked at him, you say, Charlie, don't be pusillanimous. Don't be a scary cat. All right. So Paul is speaking to young Timothy, and he starts, he starts with this particular negative. He doesn't want Timothy, then, to let the legalists and the bully boys with their threats and the hypocrites and the gnashing teeth or the glowing faces and the shining eyes of the Gnostic heretics, uh, those early heretics, he doesn't want them to win. Stand up to them, Timothy, he's saying. Resist them. He doesn't want Timothy to give in without a fight. You remember how Admiral Nelson then sent up the flags uh, for the fleet before the, the Battle of Trafalgar? Uh, England expects every man this day to do his duty. It was a boost to their morale. Oh, you remember uh, Churchill returning to his old school, Harrow, uh, during the war, and speaking to the boys on speech day and telling them, never give up. Never, never, never give up. So, he's saying to Timothy, you know, God doesn't give you a spirit of cowardice. I think God does give us a spirit of fear, a fear of hurting people whom we depend on so much. That, that fear is a good gift from God. We've seen false religion, haven't we, in those murderers in Paris earlier this month. Imagine hurting people. Imagine it. Imagine shooting strangers, young people. Girls, bombing them, stoning them, burning them alive, killing yourself. I, I'm not interested in making people religious. Man's religions have been his worst crimes. My concern is to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to explain to them what he did, why he came, what he achieved, who he is today, what he can worth doing, and what he does and what, how worthy of your following him he is, that he's the greatest enrichment of life and personality. And in our families, he has a good influence. And when we join a community of people, like a congregation, like a church, and meet with them, Christianity strengthens us. Gives us a fear of taking advantage of people. It gives us a fear of betraying them, of making vows and promises standing here and then not keeping those vows. In my teens, before I got married, I had a fear which I believe came from God. It was a fear of adultery. And I'm so thankful that I had that fear. I could have been locked in a wrong relationship. I could have got someone pregnant. I could have caused an unborn child 
to be killed. I could be paying child support for 18 years to a woman who wishes she had never met me. I'm so thankful that God gave me a holy fear of adultery. There's a good fear that God gives us, but he doesn't give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice. And that's why Amy will take a deep breath and she'll stand here and say a few words to us in a little while. It's because of some enabling, some new resources that she has. Just as the same grace is in me and helps me to teach the Bible and speak to you week by week. Many years ago there was a public meeting in the town uh, on abortion. It was held in the pier. There were rooms like that on the pier at that time. And I went along with a woman from the church named Pearl. She was feminine and retiring. But during that meeting, she became agitated by the women that were speaking there so harshly and in a dehumanizing way. One woman spoke, snarled about cutting out this growth that was in her. She had no idea about the livingness and the faculties of an unborn child. Anything less like a cancer, you, you, you couldn't imagine. I could feel the bench that we were sitting on. There were wooden benches, and it was trembling, and she got to her feet. And her voice was breaking, and she told the people there about the pain of losing a child through a miscarriage the previous year. Not losing a growth, but an unborn child. Where did she get the courage in the face of uh, those uh, intemperate and harsh women? Well, it's in this verse, you see. God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity. We're not afraid to frown at racism or the abuse of women or cruelty to animals or when the Christian faith is mocked or scorned. Well, we'll speak up. Becoming Christians doesn't make us milksops. So, Amy and many of you here have responded to the truth that you have found in Jesus Christ. His profound teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. The parables of his, the discourses in John's Gospel. No man ever spoke like him. You've looked at the extraordinary signs and miracles that Jesus did. Healing everyone without a failure, even in the latter stages of an uncurable disease. Raising the dead, having power over the winds and waves. How do you explain all that? And the reason, he says, why he came into the world was not for men to fall before him and swoon over him like teenage girls uh, before a boy band. He came to serve us and he came to help us. And the height of his service was this. He laid down his life as a ransom payment for the guilt and shame and blame of our sins. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we Christians are so thankful for these words that we heard read to us 
The words of Jesus from John 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amy and uh, every other true Christian here looks at the life of Jesus Christ. and It's not like the life of the mind-blowing magicians that we see on television doing things that we can't explain that make us say, well, how did he do that? But uh, here is a life that is thoughtful and forgiving and helpful and caring and strong and kind and consistent and pure and unselfish and generous-hearted and good to poor people and to little people and to children and to women, taking advantage of no one when they nailed him to a cross. His first words were to pray for those that had inflicted such unspeakable cruelty on him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We worship such a man. We follow such a man. And we do this by the faith God gives us and the strength that he gives us. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. And so we don't hide our lights under a bushel. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to be always ready if you ask us, what's the reason that you have hope in this dark and despairing world? And we, We want always to be ready to tell you in our stumbling way why we have hope. A spirit not of timidity is given to us. Secondly, he says God's given us a spirit of power. That's the contrast then, isn't it? Not timidity, but but power. You've got resources, he says, in Jesus Christ. And uh, we're forgetting them. You see, people, when they think of becoming Christians, then they say, well, I'd like to be a Christian, but I don't think I could keep it up. I, I, I wouldn't be able to keep living the Christian life. They think that becoming a Christian is a purely human decision you take. And then to go on day by day and year by year is again all human effort. But the Bible doesn't look at it like that. It looks at it in a very different way. It says God takes the initiative. God plans and intervenes and perforates our lives and calls us. and He's in charge. And he begins to work in our lives. He creates an interest. Maybe he, we come across a book. Or we, we listen to a CD. Or we meet uh, people. And we meet friends. A girl in the office that we've always liked. And then one day, when you asked her, did she have a good weekend? She said, yes, she, she, she was in church on Sunday. And she was really helped in church. And so, oh, and then you often asked her, and then when she said to you, come, come with me, there's a special meeting, we've got a baptismal service, come with me, and, and you went. And it was like going home. It's where you belonged. And you became a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. God did all that process. And when he begins a work in us, he doesn't leave it half done. But he brings it to completion. Sometimes he's like our, uh, our painters and uh, 
and plumbers and so on who do a job and then they go off and they have to do some other jobs before they come back and there are gaps but he comes back God comes back and continues what he began so everything that God assigned to Timothy to do in his life God enabled him actually to do and he could do it in a way that pleased God by it So um, God helps somebody to stay uh, as a preacher for 50 years. And another man, John the Baptist, is just 18 months. That's the only period he had for preaching, and that was all over. All his ministry. And that's God's will. But uh, however long or short, and whether it's a rocky road, or whether then it's just wonderfully comforting and blessed year after year he'll give us power to keep going Paul said he had learned the secret of living abundantly and prospering or really not knowing quite where his next meal was coming from I can do all things through him who strengthens me he said he was able to to live a life of contentment as a child of God in peace carrying out God's purposes, whatever the trials and temptations they were, whether he was in a a storm when the Euroclidon wind was blowing and he was having to uh, swim ashore when the boat crashed on Malta, on pieces of wood, or whether he was in a damp cell uh, chained to a Roman legionnaire he learned contentment. It's a great, a great grace, isn't it? I'm promised that I am enabled to love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. That I would be given power to forgive, to turn the other cheek, to overcome evil with good, to pardon another person 70 times 7 that I can live like that by this power that I can love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that I can obey my parents that I can esteem other people much much better than I am that I can shoulder the burdens of the weak that I can be filled with the spirit that I can present my body a living sacrifice to God I can run the race The marathon that's set before me, I can keep going. Keep going. Keep going. I can do everything through the strength that God gives me. I have power, he says. Sometimes we look at the burdens some Christians have to bear. The mountains, he asks them to climb. The trials that they're going through. And we say, how could I cope if that happened to me? I'd sink under it. But God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. He gives us a spirit of power. You can live like that. You can be more than a survivor. You can be more than a conqueror. And this power isn't just given to a certain elite, certain super-Christians, hyper-Christians. People who've had the, the baptism or the filling. But every single Christian, the newest Christian, 
the weakest lamb in the flock. This is what we are given. That we are always not normal and average, but that we are empowered and enabled, tapping the resources of God. I believe you can climb any mountain and endure any pain and bear any pressure when God is in you. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. The third thing we are told here is that God gives us a spirit of love. And there are a few problems in any marriage and a few problems in any congregation few problems in any group of students in a Christian union that can't be overcome by just much more love being shown. And, and God then, to the Christian, he doesn't teach us about love, but he gives us his own love. He sheds it abroad. It's like um, being caught in a sudden downpour on Plinlimon when you've just reached the triangulation point at the top there and you're looking up to the north and down to the beacons in the south and it's so wonderful and then suddenly the clouds come over on your way down you're drenched and you get back to your car wet and laughing God sheds his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we are renewed then not just our minds in truth, but our affections are loosened and purified. Love is kind and suffers long, is not easily provoked, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fades. That love, the love that Jesus Christ showed in his life. The love that was there in the early church. You remember when the spirit of God came upon them. In the day of Pentecost. And then the 3,000 of them became Christians. They were all baptized. And then you'll remember. Uh, how they shared everything with one another. So that there was no need. Amongst their friends that wasn't met. The widows and the orphans and Men that had turned on their wives because they'd become Christians. They were followers of the crucified Jesus. And they were thrown out. And the church just took them in. Because there was a spirit of love there. That love is then uh, one of the prime attributes of God. Um, he's not simply um, an influence. God is not simply a, a force like um, nuclear power or electricity. Unaffectionate, like the New Age gods. God is not a logical deduction or, or an intricate mega computer or a philosophical necessity. Those concepts are, are loveless. But he has a heart and a life and a personality and he reaches out to us and he puts up with us. He's seen the file on every one of us, and yet he's still loving in how he deals with us. God's love is his essence and his being. That's the core of God. 
right into the depths of his being. I have a little refrain that the congregation are weary of. You go into him and he's love and in and in and he's love and in and in and in and he's love and that's all you find. There's no place in heaven, there's no place in the character of God where he's neurotic, where he's hard, where he's inconsistent, where he's harsh. God is love in everything he does. God has no dark background. God has no past. God is not recovering from anything. He is love through and through what he's always been and what he always will be. He never grows cold. He never waxes and wanes, sometimes then temperamental and fed up with us. He's always love. And that's what he gives to us. He gives us his own love. So that you go through life with God at the center. God in your home. God in your relationships. God in your mind. It's a tremendous comfort to us. That the God who created the universe loves me. That he gave himself for me, this great mathematician. This incomparable physicist. This tremendous engineer, this thinker, with this awe-inspiring creativity and instinct. He has got a heart. And he loves me. And he loves me illimitably. There's no measure. I'm on the precipice looking down. I can't see the bottom. I can't see where the sky ends. I can't see the east or the west. And I am just confronted with measureless, infinite. Love. If all the sky were parchment and all the seas were ink, uh, there still wouldn't be enough space to write everything about the love of God. How much do I love you? I tell you no lie. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? How many times in a day do I think of you, God says? How many roses are sprinkled with dew? How far do I travel to be where you are? How far is the journey from here to a star? I'll never lose you. I tell you no lie. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? That's God's song to us. And the awesomeness of his love then, it just transforms every dark providence, every tragedy, every sorrow that we experience He is a God who exists and he exists in commitment. A God who exists in relationship. A God who's always thought about us and is thinking about us now. A God to whom we matter. A God who gave his son that we might be forgiven. That we might be delivered from our guilt and shame and blame by what God has done. We're not insignificant. We're not lonely beings trapped in some impersonal cosmos which is going to end as a great volcanic cold stone floating through space. We're not people aching for contact with extraterrestrials to offset the aloneness of the universe and our feelings of loneliness. We're not buried in darkness, in a vortex of irrationality and despair. Our lives have been caught up by the benign and loving purposes of Almighty God. And that love, that love 
Paul says God's given you love. God's given you his love. He hasn't given you timidity. He's given you um, energy, power to do his will. He's given you love. And lastly, he's given you a spirit of self-discipline. That's what he says. And again, it's one of those hapax legomena. That's the technical word, the buzzword for a word that's only found in the New Testament in one place. It's found in Plutarch and it's found in Xenophon. It's used to describe the change that occurs when a wild stallion is tamed. Curbing a skittish horse. And so it's used then oh, to describe a wise head. Level-headedness, practical sagacity, self-control. It's so important, isn't it? When someone shouts out, don't panic, don't panic. How can a man control others, be an example to others, if he can't control himself? It's not enough to have power, is it? Not enough. Um, Think of a piston engine that's driving a machine on and on, and it's got no brake. And it's got no control, and it's pounding away. And the whole building is shaking, and you can't stop it. Power must be tempered by control. The power that God gives us must be tempered by self-control. And love, well, love is so dangerous, isn't it, without self-discipline? A man will leave his wife and his children. He'll run off with a younger woman who is also married to someone because they, they've met at work and they meet at the coffee machine and they eat together and they're just uh, infatuated with one another. And along with love, we need self-discipline. Along with power, we need self-discipline. Here are a trio of graces that, that all go together. Power, love, and self-discipline. And that's what happens to a person when he becomes a Christian. That these graces come into his life. All of them come. They are the fruit of God. They are the evidence that you're a real Christian. That you haven't had some emotional spasm. That you haven't had a skillful communicator working through an organ and soft lights and that he's just brainwashed you. None of us want that. None of us want that for people we love. And you have to have all three. These are not options. This is not pick and mix. You can't say, well, I, I like love and power, but I'm not so keen on, on self-discipline. They're joined together. They're like Siamese triplets, if such a, a pathetic trio exists. God gives us grace. That's what I'm saying. That's really my message tonight. The, the living, the real God gives us living, real graces. He does. And these graces are essentially moral and ethical. But they are enabling and life-changingly powerful too. God 
gives to everyone who receives Jesus Christ the right, the power, to become the children of God. You're a, a child of God now. You can run into God's presence and you can look into his smiling face and you can say, Abba Father, thank you for your help to me, thank you for watching over me and leading me through my life and all the lovely things that you've, you've got. And then he gives, with Jesus Christ, he gives us these graces. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, those graces. And the three he mentions here, not timidity or cowardice, but a life that powerfully serves God and loves your neighbor as yourself. A life that's characterized by level-headedness. Well, don't you think that as God is, and when God, God himself deals with us, that those would be the sort of personality and characteristics and graces that God would create in us. They would, they would have a certain heroism and, and majesty that they would elevate our lives and enrich our lives in these ways. That would be the sort of life that, that God would make. Not a shrinking, fearful life, but this life power and love and self-control. I want you to know that many people in this congregation tonight live like that. I've known some of them for 50 years and I can testify to being beneficiaries of the power and love and self-discipline that their lives have displayed. I've been enormously enriched by my contact with them and knowledge of them at all sorts of levels for so long. Their lives have been changed by this God. And your life can be changed by this God too. And I guess there are very many helpful reasons why you need such a change and why you need this God to be your God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, do bless your word to us. You thank you for it. Thank you for scripture and for a promise like this that was first spoken to a young man long ago, but it speaks to young men and women and old men and women today. And it tells us of what God does in the lives of those who receive Jesus Christ as their God and Savior. And uh, I pray that we may weigh up the reality of these things ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.